This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss accountable care organizations, or ACOs, or more specifically, whether the Medicare Shared Savings Program, ACOs, will ultimately succeed. With me to address this question is Kip Sullivan, a Minnesota-based healthcare attorney with a long career in healthcare advocating in part for universal coverage via single payer. Mr. Sullivan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, Mr. Sullivan, or Kip's bio, is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, accountable care organizations are, again, the Medicare Share Savings Program is CMS's flagship pay-for-performance program and was created under Section 3022 of the 2010 Affordable Care Act. The program began in 2012 and now has grown this year to 561 ACOs serving 10.5 million Medicare beneficiaries. Just to note, there are also Medicaid ACOs and commercial insurance ACOs. Based on the last four years of Medicare Church Savings Program Performance, or 13 through 16, ACOs or Medicare Church Savings ACOs have, however, achieved marginal success. Last August, the GAO concluded over the program's first three years, these ACOs saved in some approximately $1 billion, or 0.15% of annual Medicare spending. Anemic performance led the HHS Secretary, Alex Azar, last month to state bluntly, Medicare shared savings ACO's performance has been, quote-unquote, underwhelming and lackluster. The question therefore remains begged, can the MSSP ACLs ultimately succeed or meaningfully contribute to reducing Medicare spending growth? In numerous essays over the past two years, posted on the healthcare blog and elsewhere, Mr. Sullivan has argued Medicare shared saving ACOs, along with CMS's other pay-for-performance models, formerly termed alternative payment models, are flawed, if not fatally flawed. With me to discuss the MSSP ACO's flaws and future is, again, Kip Sullivan. So with that as background or intro, Kip, uh, let me start by asking, and I believe uh, you would agree with me, that suffice to say the ACO model is, to use the academic phrase, under-theorized. So let me start by asking, uh, how did ACOs come about? You've written a great deal about this uh, relative to Elliot Fisher, Peter Orzog, Don Burrick, and others. Well, they uh, were really the product of Congress's dissatisfaction with the inflation rates in Medicare, uh, the Medicare fee-for-service program. I don't know why Medicare, why Congress focused quite so much on the fee-for-service portion of Medicare. It's the Medicare Advantage program. It's been vastly overpaid since the program began uh, under a different name in the 70s. But in any event, uh, in 2005, uh, in, in 1997, Congress... Um, enacted um, uh, the Sustainable Growth Rate Formula, the SGR. It's a cap on Part B spending, as I think probably all your listeners know. 
uh, it didn't work. Uh, the 700,000 doctors who served Medicare patients under the Part B program tended to go over the cap year in and year out. Congress didn't have the heart to uh, to lower fees in the subsequent years, which is what the 1997 law called for. So in 2005, Congress asked, passed a law that asked the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, MedPAC, to come up with a substitute for the sustainable growth rate formula. And I, both, both Congress and MedPAC understood that the idea of getting a pool of doctors with 700,000 doctors in it to work collaboratively to lower spending was a fool's errand. And what Congress asked MedPAC to do was to come up with ideas from much smaller pools. The thinking was if you weren't asking a doctor in Tulsa to give a rip about what a doctor in Minneapolis uh, was doing, instead you had doctors maybe within the same city uh, in a much smaller pool. They would see it as in their self-interest to work together to get costs done. That was essentially the mission the mandate that Congress gave to MedPAC in 2005. And late in 2006, MedPAC entertained uh, a presentation by uh, Elliot Fisher with Dartmouth. Um, in this presentation, Fisher argued that um, if you um, uh, group doctors according to the hospitals that they had the most interaction with and, and, and kind of drew a imaginary line around them. He called them in the extended hospital staff model. That uh, And then you could uh, sign contracts with these um, flimsy computer-based constructs, and somehow doctors would then be in a smaller pool and uh, try to stay as a team under their cap. That was, that was um, late 06 that that presentation took place, during the conversation after Elliot Fisher's presentation, um, Chairman uh, Hackbarth called this thing an accountable care organization. Um, Fisher later said, I like the name, and the name stuck. And um, uh, long story short, uh, writings by Fisher and MedPAC made this ACO concept very popular, even though there was absolutely no further evidence behind it other than what I told you, that somehow if you constructed these um, groups based upon hospitals, somehow they would figure out how to, I don't know, get diabetics to eat better and need less hospital care. Somewhere between the invention of this concept in late 06 and 2009, when the Democrats wrote their the bills in the House and the Senate that would become the Affordable Care Act, somewhere in that three-year period, the ACO changed from being a hospital-centric concept to a primary care doctor-centered concept. And when it became uh, law in the provision uh, David you cited at the beginning of this show, uh, it, it said um, we want accountable care organizations to be built on the relationship that patients have with primary care doctors and primary care doctors have with ACOs. So give me 30 more seconds here, and I think I can finish this description. So essentially what um, uh, the Affordable Care Act did was to authorize CMS to set up ACO programs within Medicare. 
And CMS said, all right, an ACO will be constructed as follows. It will be a two-step process. Patients, Medicare beneficiaries, will first be assigned to a doctor, uh, depending on how many visits they had with a doctor during some look-back period. I think the look-back period for the MSSP ACO program is two years. So if the performance year is 2018, CMS looks back over 2016 and 2017 and says, what doctors did this beneficiary see? If I'm a Medicare beneficiary, I saw one primary care doctor, I'm assigned to that doctor during that two-year period. If I saw more than one doctor, I'm assigned to the doctor I saw the most often. That's step one. Step two is to determine if the primary care doc has a contract or is employed by, contract with or is employed by an ACO. If the doctor does have a contract, then whoosh, patient is whisked without his knowledge into that ACO, and then CMS uh, calculates a premium for each enrollee, each, I should say, phantom attributee, and adds all those premiums up to the coming year, and that's the target level for the ACO. If it goes over it, it owes some money to CMS. If it goes under it, it uh, shares the savings with CMS. Thank you. Um, so you're right. You briefly uh, define the attribution or the assignment process and the financial benchmarking based on plurality of visits in previous years. The um, ACO provision in the ACA on background also had, and you've written about this, and that's the PGP demo, the physician group practice demo. Evidence of that presumably was used to inform this. Uh, Could you briefly just summarize what we learned from PGP? Yes, uh, that uh, was authorized, I believe, by uh, Congress in 2002, or it might have been authorized by the same legislation that passed in 03 that set up Part D under Medicare. And they, I, I believe it was motivated by the same concern Congress was having about the SGR. Uh, in any event, uh, CMS responded by uh, uh, interviewing um, numerous physician groups, as they called them, uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, Park Nicollet, um, Billings. Marshfield, um, right, yes. Uh, and they selected 10. These were the cream of the crop. They, they, CMS did not just let any old buddy walk into this. And there were 10 of them, uh, physician group practices, PGPs. And it ran from 2005 to 2010. Uh, it was apparent within the first couple of years that uh, it was not going to save any money. And at the end of the five-year period, uh, the final evaluation said that the 10 PGBs together had lost 1.2% uh, for Medicare. And that would have been even higher if the PGBs hadn't uh, upcoded so aggressively. And at that time, unlike how CMS treats upcoding by Medicare Advantage plans today, they, had no, they were not prepared for it and didn't try to adjust for it. So they they clearly lost some money. I don't know why. Uh, my impression is that uh, the PGP results were totally ignored by Congress. Um, they just added into their heads that somehow they were going to cram doctors into smaller pools, and by God, they were going to do it with ACOs, regardless of what the PGP result was. But the PGP was widely regarded as a forerunner of the ACO mm-hmm. within a year or two after it started because... As I said, within two years after the PGP started, this ACO phrase had been concocted at MedPAC, and now everybody was thinking about it as a pilot test of the ACO concept. 
All right, thank you. So let's get into your assessment of the ACO model. Uh, the model makes, as you implied, certain assumptions about what can be accomplished. Uh, let's, I'll just note two. These are uh, substantial uh, issues uh, relative to the model's failure success, and that is the assumptions we make relative to cost and quality, which you've written uh, about most recently uh, this past Monday in your Curb Your Enthusiasm essay in the healthcare blog based on uh, Mark Pauly's recent uh, essay um, in the Millbank Quarterly. So there is believed to be this relationship between cost and quality, an inverse relationship, although Pauly and others demonstrate evidence it's orthogonal. Uh, and then the other issue is, do financial incentives motivate physicians? And you were not uh, sanguine about that, for example, in your essay recently with Steve Sumerai. But what are the flawed assumptions, in your view, relative to the ACL model? Well, let me just first observe what a tough question that is to answer, because <laughs> the... I'm not going to make it easy, Kip. <laughs> <laughs> because the definition of the ACO is so nebulous. Uh, the definition uh, adopted very early on, by mainly by Fisher, but other, Mark McClellan and MedPAC chimed in, was that an accountable care organization is a group of doctors and hospitals who take responsibility for cost and quality. Mm -hmm. what, what the heck does that tell you? Well, we do know, just to say, we do know to the extent uh, it's defined is that there are 30-plus measures uh, in which they're scored through uh, the CMS web interface. And then, of course, as you noted, there's a financial benchmark. They either meet or exceed. Exceed meaning they spend less than the benchmark, and they can then accrue some percent of insured savings. So to the extent it's defined, it's pretty mechanical, albeit limited, but specific in that sense. Right, but it's a little bit like a drug company coming to the FDA and saying, we've got this red pill, and we want it to reduce the pain associated with arthritis. And when they're asked, well, what's the mechanism that will do that, you have no idea. Right, you say, right. It's black box, yes. You're yes. going to say we're going to have a report card, and we'll have 30 different quality measures to see how all this is. Yeah, fine, but what, what's in the pill? Please tell me. Never did they say what it was in. In fact, they made it crystal clear in numerous articles, particularly in health affairs, that the, that the ACO could be anything under the sun. It could be a bunch of hospital chains. It could be a bunch of clinics together. It could be doctors communicating uh, on an email in, in a rural area. But never, ever did they just say, this is what we're expecting it to do. And so if you look at evaluations of the Pioneer ACO program, that for, as you have noted in your own blog, CMS just seems committed to never evaluating the Medicare Shared Savings Program, even though that's far and away the bigger of right. the two ACO programs. But even in the, in the, in the evaluations of Pioneer ACO, which is virtually the identical model, um, uh, I forget who it, the RTI International, I think, was the, the evaluator said there's, there's no, um, prescribed intervention to describe here. It's just, it's, you've seen one ACO, you've seen one, uh, one ACO. So th that's a preamble to my answer to your question. What were the assumptions? Who knows what they were? It was just that somehow if you subjected a smaller group of doctors to some incentives, um, the thresholds, and you adjust then the punishment or the savings, depending on how they do in this tiny little handful of quality measures, 
somehow magic will flow. Somehow something good will come from this. Um, we really don't know what's inside the ACO black box. But to come back now to the Mark Pauley Lawton Burns uh, article that just appeared in Millbank Quarterly that I commented on Monday, they observed that the assumptions were implicit and rarely articulated, and then they they articulated the, the primary assumptions that you could tell were being made from the context. And one of them was that whenever quality goes north, cost goes south, and the fee for service is bad, uh, and that shifting insurance risk to doctors is good because it would cause wonderful things to happen. And um, they basically showed that those assumptions are not correct. And then they looked at the actual performance of ACOs. I had a little time, hard, I had a hard time hearing exactly your summary of the studies. The, what, what CMS's data shows is that, well, we, we heard, I, I told you about the TGP results. They lost 1.2% over five years. The Pioneer ACO program, which ran for five years, ended in 2016, saved one or two or three tenths of a percent per year. And the MSSB program has been losing uh, one to two per- tenths of a percent per year. Um, so what that tells you basically is the assumptions weren't, were incorrect. And um, the other, I think the imp- other important lesson from, uh, well, there are a number of important lessons from Burns' Polly paper. I really encourage people to read it. It's long, but it's well-organized and very well-documented. And sad to say, iconoclastic. Uh, it really goes against conventional wisdom. Uh, they reviewed the evidence that um, economies of scale uh, are almost non-existent in, once you get past small clinics and hospitals with 300 beds in them. And yet, ACO proponents are celebrating these enormous mergers, uh, partners in, in Boston, um, uh, Monarch in, in, the, in California, on the ground that somehow consolidate, financial consolidation inevitably leads to something called clinical consolidation. God knows what that is. It is apparently something that happens once everybody working in the same corporation has an electronic medical record. But Burns and Pauli observe that we have no evidence that these enormous conglomerations of providers have ever achieved efficiency under any circumstances, and so the question would be why, under the conditions CMS is setting for ACOs, that would happen. Um, and they observe as well that vertical mergers, hospitals with clinics, and horizontal mergers, clinics with clinics, and hospitals with clinics, have, do not show any efficiency. So I think it's an obvious outcome from a project that started with flabby definition and poorly articulated assumptions that were unproven, and that that foundation, quote-unquote, has now produced a, a number of failed experiments. And if we have time, we should talk about medical homes and bundled payments, because along with ACOs, those are really the three pillars of, quote-unquote, reform that the Affordable Care Act relied on for cost containment. Uh, it's, the, it's the three pillars of reform the MACRA is relying on for cost containment, and they were really the three reforms that Burns and Pauley were saying are are doomed. They Burns and Pauley used the mantra volume to value 
uh, transformation. You hear that a lot in the in, in the in the health policy literature. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, essentially, those three um, alternative payment models, quote unquote, that they said they said don't hold your breath. They're they're not going to work. Thank you. So the the evidence that there is this uh, relationship between cost and quality is is not demonstrated. Financial incentives for physicians as well, and um, uh, Burns and Pauli are critical of of both or lay that out. Consolidation. I was curious to see, per your noting, what they cite that after relatively small size uh, organizations are formed, you get no efficiency beyond that. Three hundred beds, hospitals, and ten sized physician practice groups. You're also critical of, as you noted, um, bundles, um, medical homes, and if we had time, we'd get to your similar criticism of MACRA MIPS and the APM pathway or the advanced alternative payment models, and that you've written extensively as well as what MedPAC's been doing regarding all this. But one way you've phrased or, or oriented this criticism is to compare it to our 1990s HMO experience. Is it correct to say or suffice to say that we're basically reliving uh, that same experience and not surprisingly we're going we're gonna to come out with the same outcomes? Yes, and I, I, in my conversations with people who have attempted to follow health policy, they, they express surprise when I tell them the, 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 the origin of the ACO. They I think a lot of people think that it was just a warmed over form of the HMO, trying to sneak the HMO back into the, the, uh, the marketplace after the HMO backlash of the 1990s. And as we, and I've just told you, it, that's, that wasn't its original purpose. It was originally uh, concocted as a substitute for the SGR. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the crazy thing is that because it came in sort of the side door, no one bothered to ask, why do we need both ACOs and HMOs or any other form of insurance company for that matter? Because the expectation by Fisher and MedPAC is a lot of what they they think was. The end game is a little vague along with a lot of other things about the ACO um, project, but the expectation is that ACOs will eventually be HMOs. They will eventually no longer share risk and bear all of it. That's that's the goal of uh, ACO advocates. So, yes, I see ACOs. I often refer to them as HMOs in drag or HMOs on training wheels. Or HMOs uh, 2.0. Yeah, or HMOs 2.0, or son of HMO. <laughs> any, <laughs> any sarcastic <laughs> name you want to give it, I'll, I'll go along with it. Yes, and I'll, I will note your February 26th essay, which you suggested just now, and that was titled, Why Do We Need ACOs and Insurance Companies? Which I thought was a very refreshing um, way to phrase or understand this issue or problem. Um, let me, let's, let's, let's go to, and with our remaining time, we could talk about, uh, you, you did also get into the other dimension of the relationship between ACOs and MA. You know, MedPAC spent a lot of time on how can we synchronize these two? Maybe they can compete against each other. But let me let me go to solutions. So I would say that uh, you're not optimistic about the ultimate success of ACOs, although referencing again uh, the uh, Burns and Pauli paper, at the end they say, well, there are several likely alternatives, one of which is their third strategy in their paper, 
which is to count on small steps. So that's the somewhat optimistic view that maybe ACOs can reduce low or no value care, which we estimate is about a third of all spending. So maybe they can do that over time, take a percentage point here or there off total spending. Um, but beyond that, what do you see as our, our preferred way out of this mess? I'm assuming you would just um, have comfort in if, if CMS just in some way de-emphasized or sunset this program. Yes, and, and I would say that about the entire managed care project. Let me just tell everybody something they've known since they were six years old. Total spending on anything, bananas or health care, is a function of two numbers, price times quantity. Price times quantity gives you total spending. And ever since Paul Elwood invented the misnomer health maintenance organization, the American Health Policy Establishment has been telling the world that it's the quantity portion of that piece, of, of that equation, that it's way out of whack. Americans grossly overuse health care, and someone's got to do the dirty work of making them cut it out. And they, they, they fingered doctors. They said the gross overuse that occurs in this country is caused by doctors who are being induced to overuse by the fee-for-service system. Mm-hmm. And so the fee-for-service system has been the great white whale of the managed care movement since Elwood first spoke to Nixon about this in 1970. And they, that was the original intellectual sin, because the real problem is not overuse. Yes, there is some overuse that exists in this country, but if you look at every other industrialized nation in the world, that, which is spending on average half of what we do per capita, and ask, are there people getting more or less care than we are? The answer is they're getting about the same amount, and in some cases even less, in some cases a little more. And the issue, if you ask then, how is it the U.S. prices double, costs are double those of the rest of the industrialized world, the answer is price. Our prices are insanely high. Mm-hmm. And they're insanely high because of two problems the managed care movement caused. Rapid consolidation of the system as HMOs spread and exploding administrative costs for both insurance companies and providers. So I would like to call off the managed care dogs. I'd like to terminate all of that stuff, HMOs, managed care, bundled payment, anything that relies on amputating the fee-for-service system. Leave the fee-for-service system alone. Do whatever it takes to stop the empire builders, and I think you start with a uniform fee schedule because the race to bigness that we have seen for the last 30 years in this country is motivated by the knowledge that if you're a big 1,000-pound gorilla, you can dictate to the little people under you on both sides of you, your labor and your suppliers and your customers on the other side, what price they have to take from you. If we had a system of uniform fees and prices, that advantage would disappear, and it might all by itself terminate the empire building. What it would surely do if we could get rid of all the managed care games that are being inflicted on doctors and patients is wipe away a lot of the administrative costs that managed care has caused. If you look at the growth of administrative costs in our system on a curve, it exploded in the late 80s as managed care spread. So I have multiple first steps. I think ultimately we need a single-payer system, but if we could just get managed care off the backs of doctors and hospitals, starting with ACOs, and go to a uniform all-payer system, uh, we would have taken a gigantic step away from uh, this confusing, unaccountable system, a system unaccountable either to democracy or to competition. 
You know, there's a certain irony in the title of this program, Accountable Care. Let me just push you once, uh, for one step further on prices. So this is, I'm sure you're, you are familiar with Uwe Reinhardt's work, uh, James Madison, a political economy professor at, at Princeton, died actually last fall, sadly. Uh, but his comment all along was, it's the price is stupid. Yep. Um, and this gets at uh, fee-for-service pricing and the AMA and RVUs. Um, which CMS does a very good job of avoiding addressing. Um, how, how might that issue, how might the price issue actually be meaningfully tackled? Well, you, you, you've touched on two, two aspects of it. One is fair pricing across various services. I suspect most people think specialists are overpaid compared with primary right. care doctors. right. And given the distribution, we badly need more primary care doctors, although there's some shortages coming in specialty care as well. Uh, that has to be worked out. Um, but then the, the overall issue is how do we guarantee that a gigantic HMO or insurance company uh, doesn't survive simply because it uses its oligopsony, oligopoly power uh, and really is providing useful service to people? I think it's important that doctors be paid the same amount for the same work, regardless of whether the payer is a 1,000-pound gorilla or, or a 50-pound gorilla. Um, and I, I believe as the latest round of managed care fads are starting to fail, we are seeing, I, I, mean, you, I, you, I don't know the interest in your perception, but I'm beginning to perceive more and more interest in dealing with price and admitting that quantity is not the main problem. And to the extent that it is, we should extend that overuse as a problem. We should address it in a highly targeted way. I suspect MRIs are grossly overused. Let's focus just on MRIs. Let's not hurt all doctors and patients into HMOs and ACOs to get at excessive use of MRIs. That's the equivalent of buying a chainsaw to cut butter. Um, so to sum up, let's focus on price, get over our obsession with the alleged amount of overuse in our society, and... Um, to the extent that overuse is a problem, come up with targeted solutions for it. Well, there is somewhat of the optimistic view that uh, after all of this um, sort of dead-ended policy efforts, we're going to back our way into, when you talk about price and uniform fee fee schedules, is is single-payer. I mean, that's what gets you there, is single-payer, because then you, by definition, get to uniform or, or uh, a uniform uh, fee schedule. So sadly, so want, sorry, I'm going ahead. Sorry. If, if, as long as the insurance industry is still in place, you've still got a multiple payer system. They're they're just now handcuffed as to what it is they they can pay. A true single payer bypasses the insurance industry, so they're not scraping twenty percent off the top before they send the rest to doctors with strings attached. Right. We would likely most countries do it in a hybrid manner, as you uh, just suggested. Uh, I wish we could go on for another uh, however long, but uh, we're at our time boundary, Kip. So thank you for this overview of your work. Uh, again, uh, for the listeners, Kip's work has been published uh, in multiple places. I referenced, moreover, about a dozen essays in the healthcare blog dating back at least until June 2016, but they appear elsewhere as well, uh, which I'm sure can be easily searched and found. Uh, so with that, Kip, I'm genuinely appreciative for your time. Thank you. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, 
please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.